Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vaborg Thun. Tonight, we are back in the city called The Old Smoke. Today, mostly only known by its proper name of London. The date is the 29th of September, the year 1888. In previous episodes, we have followed old Leather Apron, Whitechapel Jack, on his bloody path through the smoke-filled alleys of London's East End. Three women have so far been slain by the Ripper, and tonight we will take a closer look over Jack's shoulder as he murders his fourth known victim. It's important that you listen to part one to three before listening to this episode. So, if you haven't done so already, do so now. This podcast has in excess of 7 million downloads in total, but both my Patreon page and my Facebook page are only visited by a few thousand. On my Facebook page at facebook.com slash the SK podcast, you will find bonus content, exclusive Facebook live videos featuring me, and you can contact me, your humble host, directly, and I always reply in person. Also, as many of my Facebook listeners know, 
the Kickstarter project for the exclusive The Serial Killer Podcast coffee mug that changes color as it heats up is now live. We only need 70 more pledges to reach our goal, and the mugs will be shipped to, I am sure, very satisfied customers. Your pledge will make a huge difference. Go to theserialkillerpodcast.com and click on the Kickstarter banner now. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, that you take your trusted pocket watch out of your dress coat. The hour is half past eight p.m. Your name is Police Constable Lewis Robinson. You notice a large crowd is gathering over by 29 Aldgate Street. The area is one of the less slummy of the Whitechapel area, and there are lots of storefronts lining both sides of the street. Horse buggies rush by, their metal wheels clamoring on the cobblestones as they nearly miss you as you cross the street to see what the commotion is all about. As you move aside, some of the people gathered around, something on the ground. You quickly realize it's a woman. She's lying on the ground, in a heap, apparently very, very drunk. Asking the people around if anyone know the woman, you get only silence in response. So you and your colleague, Police Constable George Simmons, who has shown up to the scene, lift the woman to her feet and drag her to the Bishopgate Police Station. Today, Bishopgate Police Station is an imposing grey concrete, almost fort-like building. Back in 1888, it looked rather different. It was a red brick four-storey building with two entrances in front. The wall facing the street was usually plastered with police notices under a large gas-lighted lamp hanging above. Sergeant James Byfield was registering inmates when Simmons and Robinson brought the woman into the station around 8.45 p.m. When Byfield asked her name, she replied, nothing. Five minutes later, she was placed in a cell, where she passed out. Police constable George Hutt was tasked with keeping an eye on the prisoners that evening and passed by her cell several times as she slept. An hour later, the city police constables assigned to the night shift headed out through the gates of Bishopsgate Station to walk their beats. This included city police constable Edward Watkins, whose 15 minutes loop took him through Mitre Square, and City Police Constable James Harvey whose route passed by Mitre Square at regular intervals. At 12.15am, Police Constable George Hutt heard the woman who was brought in earlier singing softly to herself in her cell. 
A few minutes later, she called out, asking when she would be released. When you are capable of taking care of yourself, replied Hut. I can do that now, she said. Several minutes later, she was finished being processed, and amended her earlier registry of nothing to Mary Ann Kelly of Six Fashion Street. It was more believable, but still an alias. It was a very interesting alias, considering the circumstances. A woman named Mary Kelly would soon also find herself in dire straits in Whitechapel. But this woman's real name was not Mary. It was Catherine Eddowes, sometimes called Kate Kelly. She was ready to be released by 1 a.m. What time is it? she asked Hutt. Too late for you to get anything to drink, he replied. I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home, she said. And serve you right, you had no right to get that drunk, he admonished, opening the door for her. This way, missus, please pull it too. Catherine exited in the opposite direction of where her actual nightly residence had been, the Cooney's lodging house, located at Flower and Dean Street. Instead, she headed back toward Oldgate High Street, right on the western edge of Whitechapel, where Robinson had discovered her earlier. At about 1.30 a.m., Joseph Lawande, a commercial traveller, Joseph Hyam Levi, a butcher, and Harry Harris, a furniture dealer, were walking nearby. They were heading down 16 to 17 Duke Street from the Imperial Club. The three passed by a couple walking in the opposite direction. Harris did not notice them at all, and Levi took little note of them other than the fact that they were both rather shabby-looking. Lawende, however, had the best memory of the couple's appearance of all of them. While he didn't see the woman's face, he was later able to recognize her clothing. He went on to describe the man as looking to be around thirty years old, five foot seven inches tall with a moustache, wearing a loose-fitting salt-and-pepper jacket and a red handkerchief around his neck. Lawende was the last person, besides her killer, to lay eyes on Catherine Eddowes while she was still alive. Mitre Square was a ten-minute walk from Bishopsgate Station. It exists today and consists of a small park and a parking lot. It, too, is on the very western edge of Whitechapel, and back in 1888 it was a very dark and depressing place. It was basically an opening between tall brick warehouses and office buildings. There was a tiny flower bed at one end of the square, but otherwise it was covered in cobblestones. Catherine Eddowes was discovered murdered right there 
at 1.45 a.m. by Police Constable Watkins. Before we get into the details of how Catherine was slain, let us take a closer look at who she was as a person, rather than just another victim. Based on the accounts of her friends and family, Kate was well-liked. Old friends described her as intelligent, scholarly, a woman of fiery temperament. Frederick Wilson, the deputy of Cooney's lodging house, described her as a very jolly woman, always singing, which seemed to be corroborated by George Hutt's experience with her in the jailhouse. Looking at a sketch of her from when she was alive, Catherine was a somewhat attractive woman. She had a pleasant face, with somewhat plump features, a small nose, large eyes, and full lips. She was born to George Eddowes, a tin-plate worker, in 1842. Her mother was also named Catherine, and she had two sisters whose married names were Elizabeth Fisher and Eliza Gold. Her family moved from the countryside to London in 1848, where she was educated at St. John's Charity School until her mother died in 1855. Some newspaper accounts claim that both of Catherine's parents died in 1851. In any case, after she was orphaned, she moved to Bison Street in Wolverhampton, where she attended Dowgate Charity School. Eddowes was about twenty-one, living in Wolverhampton, when she met and became involved with a man named Thomas Conway. He was a military pensioner from the 18th Royal Irish Regiment. Not too much is known of their life together but it is believed that they made their money in Birmingham, selling cheap novels, as well as writing popular songs called Gallows Ballads. They never married, but did live together for about twenty years, and had three children in 1865, 1868, and 1873. Two boys and a girl named Annie. A tattoo found on Catherine Eddowes' arm, reading T.C., was believed to represent Conway's initials, and was very helpful when her body had to be identified later on. In 1881, the couple split, probably due to Catherine now having become an alcoholic, who could not control her drinking. Thomas Conway was a teetotaler, according to his daughter, while Kate was in the habit of drinking excessively. Eventually, the conflict became too great, and Eddowes moved into Cooney's lodging house at 55 Flower and Dean Street. Her daughter, Annie, soon married and moved in with her husband, Louis Phillips. She spent the next several years moving from one place to the other in attempts to avoid her mother constantly begging her for money she could use to buy booze. While staying at Cooney's, Catherine met an Irishman, 
named John Kelly. He worked in the markets, often for one of the local fruit vendors. The two were close for the next seven years until police found Edo's body in Mitre Square. Taking on the surname of one's partner, even if marriage had not officially taken place, was a common practice for lower-class women at the time. Catherine, therefore, was also known as Kate Kelly. Friends and family were adamant that Kate was not a prostitute, and that she made her money from hawking and doing odd jobs around town. The Cooney House deputy, Frederick Wilkinson, told the police that he never knew of her being intimate with anyone but Kelly, and that she was usually home and to bed by nine or ten in the evening. It is very unlikely, though, that anyone in Catherine's life would wish to speak ill of the dead. On the other hand, it is likely that Catherine Eddowes, like Annie Chapman, had engaged in prostitution from time to time when she needed the money to feed her drinking habits. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash killer. Late summer in England was hop-picking season, where many of the poor would go to the countryside to find work collecting the hops, 
that would be used by the nearby breweries. John Kelly and Catherine Eddowes went to the countryside for hop-picking season in 1888, which they had done for the previous several years. Having little success getting work, and with no money for a ride, the two struck out for London on foot. On the road they came across a man and a woman. The woman offered Eddowes a pawn ticket she had for a flannel shirt. The woman's name was Emily Birrell, and a pawn ticket would be found on Eddowes' person in Mitre Square. On the 29th of September, John and Kate arrived back in London. Having no money when they got to the city, John managed to earn six pennies so they could get lodging for the night. A bed at their usual lodging house, Cooney's, was four pennies. So Kate volunteered to take the remaining two pennies and sleep in the casual ward that night. When interviewed, a superintendent of the casual ward reported that Eddowes had said, I have come back to earn the reward offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer. I think I know him. He warned her to watch out so the killer might murder her too, to which she replied, Oh, no fear of that. This story was not corroborated by anyone else and could well have been a complete fabrication. But the quote added to the sensationalism and public reaction to the coming double homicide. The following morning, of the 29th of September, Kate was kicked out of the casual ward for an unknown reason, never to return. John and Kelly met at 8 a.m. near Cooney's lodging house, and Kate took a pair of Kelly's boots to a pawnbroker on Church Street named John's. She pawned the boots under the name of Jane Kelly for the price of a meal. Frederick Wilkinson saw Eddowes and Kelly later, between 10 and 11 a.m., having breakfast in Cooney's kitchen. Still completely broke, the hunt began for money for food and lodging for the rest of the day. Catherine told John Kelly that she would try to get some money from her daughter, Annie. John was worried about separating from her and reminded her of the killer. The two parted in Hounsditch, and she promised to be home no later than 4 p.m. Don't you fear for me. I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall into his hands, were her parting words to him. Nobody is quite sure what happened in between the time they had parted and the time that Police Constable Robinson found Eddowes lying drunk on Aldgate Street. John Kelly would not see her again alive. At 2 a.m., Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown arrived at Mitre Square to perform the on-site post-mortem, later continuing the autopsy at Golden Lane Mortuary, 
12 hours later. Of all the Ripper victims up until this point, Catherine Edo's body had the greatest amount of damage to the entirety of her body. Her throat was cut in the same manner, about six or seven inches from left to right, and she was disemboweled. The large vessels on the left side of the neck were severed. Her intestines were also placed over her right shoulder and had been nicked, releasing smeared fecal matter upon the space behind her shoulder. About two feet of intestine had been detached from her body and placed between Edo's body and left arm. Whereas the previous disemboweled victims, Nichols and Chapman, had fairly straight and organized cuts to their abdomens, Edo's had been cut in a more jagged and erratic manner. Kate was also the first to have her face mutilated by the Ripper. A triangular flap was peeled from the skin of each cheek, with tips pointing toward the eyes that some have said looked like arrows. There were also cuts made to her eyelids, including one that was about an inch and a half long to the left eye. Upon examining her internal organs, Brown found that Edo's right kidney was pale, or as he described, bloodless with slight congestion of the base of the pyramids. This was a sign that she suffered from Bright's disease. The left kidney had been removed and could not be found in or around the body. The uterus had been cut horizontally and had been removed all but for a quarter of an inch-sized stump. Brown made several summarizing comments at the conclusion of his post-mortem exam. Among these was that the murder was the work of one person, and that this person had severed Edo's throat so suddenly that there was no way she could have cried out. He also stated that whoever had removed Edo's kidney must have had some knowledge of where the kidney was located to be able to so quickly remove it in the dark. Whether that meant he was a medical man or a slaughterhouse worker. Brown asserted that he had no idea what the reason someone would have to take any of the body parts away. Dear listener, let us pause just a minute to contemplate what we just learned. Catherine was not, as was the case with at least one of the other victims, strangled to death. Jack would have, probably after gaining her confidence in some manner, surprised her by producing a very sharp knife rapidly and slicing her throat wide open. This would mean that her vocal cords were cut, preventing her from uttering any screams as she fell to the ground, blood violently spurting from her throat. As she lay on the ground, grasping at her open neck, Jack probably sat on top of her, starting to rip her apart.
The mutilations done to her body was thus probably all done while Catherine was still alive. Today's modern medicine might have given us answers as to which of Jack's incisions were done first. But unfortunately, this knowledge is forever lost. It is, in my humble opinion, very plausible that Jack would have started by cutting her eyelids. The reason for this is that he might have wanted Catherine to witness him as he was ripping her, preventing her from closing her eyes in terror. He might also have wanted to stare into her eyes as she died so that he could literally see the light go out of her eyes. Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police joined together for the murder inquiry and found some evidence in the surrounding area of the path that the Ripper may have taken. For example, at 3 a.m. soon after Brown came to examine Edo's body, there was a piece of fabric covered with blood and fecal matter lying in a passageway near Goldston Street in Whitechapel. This fabric was found to match a part missing from Edo's own apron, seeming to imply that after the murder the Ripper had headed back into Whitechapel. Goldston Street was only about a fifteen-minute walk from Mitre Square. Another puzzling piece of evidence was a graffito found above the place where the soiled fabric was found. Written in chalk, it said, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Not knowing whether or not this was related to the murder, and afraid that this might incite anti-Jewish rioting and violence, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren demanded that it be washed away before morning. While Nichols, Chapman, and Stride had quiet, private funerals, Catherine Eddowes' funeral brought the entire city into the street as spectators. The procession coming from the Golden Lane Mortuary passed along Mile End Road, through Bow and Stratford Streets. A large crowd was waiting at the gates of the cemetery, after which the gates shut them out. Ultimately, only those who were close to Edo's while she lived were permitted to attend the graveside services. Among those who attended the funeral were Kate's daughter, Annie Phillips, her sisters, Eliza Gold, Harriet Jones, Emma Edo's, and Elizabeth Fisher and John Kelly. Coincidentally, Eddowes were buried just a few graves away from Mary Ann Nichols, both in Square 318, City of London Cemetery, Little Ilford, at Manor Park Cemetery. Eddowes was laid to rest in public grave number 49336. Her remains currently lie beside the Garden Way, in 1996, cemetery authorities decided to mark Kate's grave with a bronze plaque. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And so ends part four of my series on Jack the Ripper. Next week, I will present to you a killer from a more exotic location. So... As they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. This podcast had not been possible if it hadn't been for my dear patrons that invest in this show via Patreon. My special thanks go out to those of you that have stayed loyal for a long time. Those of you I would like to give an extra heartfelt thank you to are Amber and Charlotte, Jason, Joe, Lisbeth, Maud, Mickey, PJ, Sandy, Sarah, Tommy, and Troy. Your monthly contributions really help keep this podcast thriving. You have my deepest gratitude. As always, thank you, dear listener, for listening. And feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app, Facebook, or website. And please, do subscribe to the show if you enjoy it. Thank you, good night, and good luck.